Well, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. It's a pleasure to be able to come here and share about the work of the college. It is a privilege to be able to come here and to open God's Word with you. So let me um, read uh, God's Word before we look at it. Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to look, read verses five, chapter 1 verse 5 through to chapter 2 verse 4. This is the word of God. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angel winds and his ministers of flame of, his ministers of, flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, led the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. For you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So reads, God's word. Can you remember the first time you heard someone be called a goat? Can you remember the first time? I do. Uh, I was a child. I was in the back seat of a car of some older people from the church that we attended whenever I was a child. Uh, and as we were driving along the road, the man behind the steering wheel muttered really quite angrily, Get off the road, you silly old goat. His tone and outburst shocked me on two counts. First, he was angrier than I had ever seen him. In fact, I'm not sure I had ever seen this man angry. And secondly, it was only about ten minutes after the church service had finished. Given this initial experience, you can imagine my confusion whenever some years later I heard some people debating which basketball player was the goat. I wondered what the basketball player had done wrong to be labelled in this way. But then I heard people arguing about which footballer was the goat. And, and the names that they mentioned were Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Which one was the goat? And I knew that both of them were at the peak of their footballing powers. Neither of them seemed worthy of this slur. And it was then that I learned GOAT was an acronym for greatest of all time. 
G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. The debates were about which basketball player was the greatest of all time, which footballer was the greatest of all time. As for the silly old goat driving the car, I think they were just a silly old goat. There was no greatest of all time there. But the book of Hebrews is all about asserting that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. There is no one greater. There is no one better. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is supreme. Uh, And the purpose of asserting the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews is to encourage its readers to persist in the Christian faith despite all of the temptations to live life according to another rule of faith. Uh, And in the passage that we have just read, we learn that Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time because he is the king who is superior to angels. Jesus is the king who is superior to angels. And as we reflect on this truth from this passage, there are four notes to observe. The first thing to see in this passage is God's word. God's word. It should be immediately apparent to you in the layout of your Bible that this passage is heavily based on quotations. And all of these quotations are from the Old Testament. As you read through the book of Hebrews, it becomes obvious that the entirety of the argument is based on the Old Testament. God's word is the foundation on which this author builds his argument. In this first chapter, there are seven Old Testament quotations and only ten verses. The author quotes from Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, 5, possibly 6 Psalms. Again and again, the author of Hebrews points his readers back to God's word. Both elements of the argument that we're going to look at, angels and Jesus, they're both referenced in these Old Testament passages quoted by the author. It's a great example of the importance that God's word should have in shaping our understanding and helping us to comprehend the world. This is part of the reason why I always encourage my listeners to open their Bibles, and I'm glad that many of you have. I want you to turn to God's word. You should not want to hear what I have to say. You should want to hear what God has to say from his word. I might get something wrong. I promise I'll try not to, but I might. This book will get nothing wrong. Let me push this just a little bit further based on something that the book of Hebrews does. Hebrews consistently points its reader back to the Old Testament. The Christian scriptures constitute both the Old and New Testaments. And for too long, too many Christians have had only a fleeting or superficial acquaintance with the Old Testament. And this ignorance of the Old Testament is fatal in properly comprehending the message of the New Testament. We need to know our Old Testament. It's the Bible that Jesus read. It's the source of the first gospel preaching in the book of Acts. It is the majority of our Christian Bible. Find Matthew and see where the division is between the Old and New Testament. The majority of our Bible is the Old Testament. We ignore it at our peril. Let me try to illustrate this. Uh, I I used to work in the cinema. And uh, frequently, whenever we would go in to clean a screen after a film was over, there would be people sitting in the seats. Sometimes they wanted to watch all of the credits. They obviously had nowhere better to be and wanted to watch all of these names roll across the screen. 
more often than not, they um, were just trying to slip into a different film, and uh, young people trying to get two films for the price of one ticket. But more often than you would believe, they'd simply turned up too early, and they'd caught the end of the last showing instead of the beginning of the showing they were hoping to see. Uh, and whenever that happened, they failed to properly understand the conclusion to the film. You always knew who those people were because they had this quizzical look on their face. That film was only 10 minutes long. That can't be right. Lots of them even spoiled the twist in the film's storyline. However, for those people who had caught the end of the film before seeing all of it, they were not content with that 5 or 10 minutes at the end. All of them sat through to watch the whole film again, even though they knew how it ended. And watching that meant that they were able to piece together the storyline. I want to suggest to you this morning that Christians who ignore the Old Testament are like people who turn up to the cinema, catch the last five minutes of the film, and then leave. You're missing out on all of the beauty and the power of the full story of God's love for his people. And so I want to encourage you this morning, spend time becoming familiar with the Old Testament. Get to know your entire Bible, not just your favorite parts. And if we dig into the Old Testament, what do we learn? Well, that's the second thing this morning. The second thing to note in this passage is God's messengers, the angels. Throughout scripture, it is relatively clear that that angels are God's messengers. In both Testaments, we regularly see angels carrying God's message to God's people. And in our minds, and particularly at this time of year, we're probably most memorably portrayed in the nativity narratives and the angels showing up there. But given that the book of Hebrews was probably written before the Gospels were written, the first audience of the book of Hebrews probably thought of angels more along the lines of the angels that visited Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, the the angel who executed God's judgment on Israel after David took the census, or the angel who shut the lion's mouths in the den uh, when Daniel was there. That angels are God's messengers is made explicit in Hebrews 1, however. Look at verse 7 with me. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Here the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 104, and it's clear from this passage that the angels do God's bidding. Also interesting here is the fleeting nature or the transitory nature of which the angels are described. Wind and fire. They tend not to last. They they come and they go. Bear that in mind because we'll come back to that in just a moment. Look at verse 14 with me as well. Are they not all ministering spirits who sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Here at the end of the string of Old Testament quotations, the author of Hebrews gives his summary of angels. They are ministering spirits. They serve God who sends them and Christians who benefit from them. Thomas Schreiner explains, angels are God's messengers and servants. They are not worshipped as the sun is, for they did not create the world, but they are part of the created order. They are not the sun but couriers who carry out the will of God. They are messengers. At the risk of stating the obvious, the line of argumentation in Hebrews 1 warns us that we must be careful to avoid the trap 
of being consumed with angelology. Now, for those who are thinking that that's a bit ludicrous, David, you don't need to go down that line. One commentator, when working on this passage, visited his local non-Christian bookstore, and there he found 85 separate titles related to angels, including one entitled Big George, the autobiography of an angel. The reality is, though, if it's not angels, it's something else. Many of us are preoccupied with lesser things, like angels, and we forget the supreme thing, Jesus Christ. One of the particular dangers we face is pursuing, is pursuing the lesser things of messengers. Just as the angels are God's messengers, serving him by bringing God's word to God's people, so preachers, pastors, and theologians bring God's word to God's people. Now, do not mishear me. I'm not saying pastors, preachers, and theologians are angels. But sometimes we treat them as such. The important thing is the message not the messenger. The important thing is what God says, not who he says. And of course, this is nothing new, is it? Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul has to rebuke the church in Corinth for their preoccupation with messengers. Some championed Paul, others Apollos, some Peter, and then the smug among them claimed that they championed Jesus. The, the church in Corinth was in danger of forgetting the message because they celebrated the messengers. And today is a little different. We have people aligning themselves with different celebrity pastors or prominent theologians or various movements. Uh, and by all means, we should be grateful to God for these gifts, for those who make Scripture clear to us. But we must not forget the message. Jesus Christ is the greatest of all time. There is no one greater, no one better. The message in Hebrews 1 is not to think too highly of those who are simply God's messengers. In fact, it is just the opposite. We can use a biblically based discussion of angels as a launching point from which to speak about the supremacy of the Son of God. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews does. And so the third thing to note in our passage is God's royal Son. God's royal Son. Jesus is the focus of this passage. He's the focus of this chapter. He's the focus of the whole book of Hebrews. If we don't talk about Jesus, then we've missed the point of the passage. That Jesus is central to Hebrews 1 is apparent from the amount of space devoted to him. He is the son to whom all these Old Testament quotations are applied. This initial impression is then supported by the content of the passage. Let's work our way through these quotations. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 verse 7 and 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And in their Old Testament contexts, both of these passages refer to the Davidic king and his descendants. They communicate the great privilege that Israelite kings enjoyed as adopted sons of God. Israelite kings weren't the only ones to enjoy this designation. Angels are also called sons of God throughout the Old Testament. But in Hebrews 1, Jesus is not merely a son of God. He is the son of God. 
more. He is the royal son. Look at verse 6 with me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is a quotation from either the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97. Um, I think it's probably a mixture of both. But either way, it's clear that this royal son enjoys being worshipped by the angels. Here is the first hint of the divinity of this royal son, of this Jesus Christ. And this divinity is then made explicit in verses 8 and 9. There the author writes, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This Old Testament passage, Psalm 45, is scandalous because it reckons the Israelite king as divine. But when we see it in connection to Jesus Christ, It begins to make a bit more sense, doesn't it? Look at verses 10 through to 12, because the author continues to build his argument. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus' divinity is further reinforced here with this quotation of Psalm 102. And with this passage, the royal son is named as the one who is involved in creation, who possesses divine characteristics like unchangeableness. Contrast that with the fleeting angels, wind and fire. The son is unchangeable. And the culmination is in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This royal son, Jesus Christ, is now enthroned at the Father's right hand. Now there's much in these Old Testament quotations that could occupy our thinking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But it is sufficient to simply note that the author of Hebrews is unmistakably asserting that the royal son is superior in all ways to the angels, to the messengers. Given who Jesus Christ is, the divine royal son, and if you still still doubt his divinity, look at chapter 1 and verse 3. The son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Given who Jesus is, the divine royal son, you and I owe him absolute allegiance. Absolute allegiance. Permit me to address those here today who are not Christians. One day you will stand before this divine royal son, Jesus Christ. He is the supreme ruler of the universe. He is the God of the galaxies. There is no realm beyond his control. And thus there is no human beyond his rule. One day you will stand before this son. And you will give an account of your life. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You will face his judgment. 
And so I invite you, pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ now. For those of us who are Christians, we must recognize that while Jesus Christ is indeed our Savior, He is also our Lord. We are not free people, rather we are people of the kingdom of God. Therefore, we must march to the beat of Jesus' drum. We must sing in harmony with Jesus' tune. We must be clothed with the colors of Jesus' team. Fellow Christian, our true freedom is found not in disobedience, but in obedience to the true Son. A year or so ago, we, uh, I began watching the uh, TV miniseries Chernobyl uh, about that awful event. And ever since watching that TV series, I've been reading books about Chernobyl on and off. It is a fascinating episode in history. The director of the Chernobyl nuclear plant at the time of the accident in April 1986 was a man called Viktor Brukhanov. He was by no means the only guilty party in the whole incident. But when he was called before the Politburo and the General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev to answer for the calamity that took place under his watch in Reactor Unit 4, he knew what was coming. He knew it was the end of the road for him. He knew that he could not outrun the Communist Party and USSR. If Viktor Brukhanov, who could not escape Gorbachev or the KGB or the Politburo or the USSR and the Communist Party, if he could not escape them, what makes us think that we can escape the King of the Universe? Jesus Christ, God's royal Son. We can't. And if there is no escape, the question falls to us, well, what do we do? And that is the fourth and final thing we see in our passage. God's call. Because God's call to his people in response to all that has been led out in Hebrews 1 is found at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Let me read those first four verses of Hebrews 2 again. Therefore, in light of all that has just been said, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These few verses serve as a point of application in the book of Hebrews. It is essentially a call from God for allegiance to his royal son. And the argument is one from lesser to greater. Verse 2 refers to a message delivered by the angels that was not only reliable, but there was punishment for those who disobeyed that message. What was this message? Well, Jewish tradition held that angels were involved in the delivering of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, that's not recorded for us in our Old Testament, but it appears that the author of Hebrews is picking up on this Jewish tradition. In verses 3 and 4, what we have is a message not delivered by the angel, but delivered by the royal son, who is superior to those angels. 
surely reasons Hebrews. His message is truer and disobedience to it will be more strictly punished. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. As subjects of the royal son, we must maintain our focus on him. Jesus Christ must be front and center in our minds and in our lives. The author of Hebrews pleads, do not turn your back on Jesus. Do not become lax in considering him. Keep your eye trained on the royal son. If you're brave enough to swim in the sea around this island, or rich enough to fly somewhere where the sea's a little bit warmer, you may have had the experience of drifting along the coast. One moment you're in the water swimming or jumping over waves, the next the shoreline looks completely different. Instead of your family on the beach, it's strangers on the beach. Instead of a beach, it's rocks that you can see. You've drifted. If you do not keep your eye on the shore, you drift without even noticing. The author of Hebrews is not calling us to keep our eye on the shoreline, but to keep our eye on the supreme sun. How? Well, as I draw to a close, let me mention five things briefly. How to keep a focus on Jesus Christ. One, attend church. Do what you've done this morning. I would be amazed if you came to church service regularly and did not hear about Jesus Christ. Two, participate in a prayer meeting. At a prayer meeting, you will hear about Jesus and you will worship Jesus. Three, read your Bible. Jesus himself declared that the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, the three major divisions of the Old Testament, they all testify to him. The Bible is about Jesus. Reading it will help maintain your focus on him. Four, read good books. I want to suggest this morning that you start with John Piper seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Less than 100 pages, chapter after chapter, about different facets of who Jesus is. And five, participate in communion. We're going to have the pleasure of doing that in just a moment. What better way to pay closer attention to Jesus Christ and his message than to remember his death in our place? And why would you not want to spend your time considering Jesus Christ? After all, he is undeniably the greatest of all time. There's no doubt in the mind of the author of Hebrews. Jesus is the king who is superior to angels. He is the divine royal son to whom all are answerable. There is no one greater, no one better. Therefore, turn to the scriptures. Meditate on Jesus Christ. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let's pray. The author of Hebrews writes, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden 
from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Father, we do not attempt to hide from you this morning. We know that you see us, that you know all about us. And so we simply pray that your word, which is living and active, would pierce us today. We pray that it would pierce us to heal us. We pray that we would be reminded of all of the ways in which we're focused on lesser things instead of the supreme thing. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and for his greatness and his majesty and his supremacy. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would equip us to hear the call of the author in Hebrews. To pay much closer attention to Jesus Christ. And to not neglect this great salvation. We pray this for our own good, but ultimately for your honour and glory.